Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. I want to tell you our catchphrase. It's different on our Facebook page than what I say. And it's different on our website about it's not the same phrase. In oh, wow. I, I think we discussed that very early on because I kept forgetting exactly what it was. So maybe I need to fix it. On but anyways, our Facebook page, what were you going to say? People can get that. Well, you? first of all, I was going to say if there's a little bit of a humming in the background, it's because it's zero Fahrenheit, mm. which for those of our listeners who are in the metric system, that's minus 17.78 Celsius. Yeah. So I have my gas going because my house which is like a hundred years old and was poorly built anyway, is like an Arctic zone, no matter how high I have my. Um, I'm sitting heat. on an electric blanket. Yeah. We catch fire during this, but oh, that'll be, be warm. Good. You'll be spontaneously combust or not spontaneously combust because you'll actually just catch fire from something. But anyway, so I also want to say, despite the rumors, we did not deliberately sabotage the sound on our last episode because Liz was doing it and Liz yeah. was so much more popular than we are she should just have her own podcast she should she wants to hitch her wagon to our star and while we're doing this little housekeeping stuff i also want to say we've been asked by several listeners right yes uh, about how they can access episodes like i think it's like maybe one through 25 or so i think it goes up to 40 the long and short of it is i've been trying to adjust on our website which you know you have to have a url for the website that goes through and then goes to like apple podcasts and stuff and i've adjusted it so it's supposed to show 200 episodes which is way more it should be adequate for everything we've got and it's still not updating and i don't know if it's just an issue with apple and also apple you know for about two days they had the new logo that you made yeah and then they switch back to our old logo you know apple kind of sucks and if they're listening i hope they don't like fuck us up even more but i know that people do want to listen to some (laughs) i'm seeing your cat's tail i know people do want to listen to to some of those earlier episodes and we have some good ones so even on your phone if you just go to crimeandstuffonline.com you can access all the episodes there and you can just scroll down and you can still listen on your phone and but that said i'll try to fix that Okay. You had an update. Yes, it's kind of an update. Episode 25 was about Phil Spector and the killing of Lana Clarkson. And in that episode, we talked a lot about Phil, obviously, and his weird (laughs) crazy. Well, just recently, his ex-wife, Ronnie Spector of the Ronettes, just died. She was 78. And I figure it's kind of an update because we did talk a lot about her. He was horrible to her and he locked her in his house. And if you want to hear more about it, listen to episode 25. But Ronnie was, she and the Ronettes were very popular um, from the early 60s on. And it is thanks to Phil Spector. Mm-hmm. But well, she, and Ronnie's awesome voice too. Yes. And she was from Washington Heights, Manhattan. She's biracial. She's multiracial. They said, I think she's Hispanic and black. I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts from her obituary. And she said about the Ronettes, we weren't afraid to be hot. That was our gimmick. When we saw the Shirelles walk on stage with their wide party dresses, we went in the opposite direction and squeezed our bodies into the tightest skirts we could find. Then we'd get out on stage and hike them up to show our legs even more. Yeah, they were hot. They were sexual. And they wore a lot of eyeliner and mascara and they had their beehive hairdos and they were unapologetic about it. Be My Baby is probably... Mm. 
when she died, there were a couple quotes from other musicians that I liked. One of them was Brian Wilson. He wrote on Twitter. I loved her voice so much. And she was a very special person and a dear friend. And the one that I, I really liked was Keith Richards. When they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Keith Richards remembered opening for them in the 1960s with the Rolling Stones. So the Rolling Stones opened for the Ronettes. Mm -hmm. And he said they could sing all their way through a wall of sound. They didn't need anything. They touched my heart right there and that they touch it still. Brian Wilson wrote Don't Worry Baby for her. So I just want to say goodbye to Ronnie. And I'm glad she escaped from Phil. And Phil died before her, so she got to see him go. Yeah, he was a crazy bastard. Yeah, I have a couple updates, too. Okay. Stephen Downs, episode 63. He was never a full episode, but he was a main mini and a bunch of updates. The quick background is that Downs, 47 of Auburn, Maine, is charged with murdering Sophie Sergi, who was 20 at the time, at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, where he was a student in 1993. He was arrested in Auburn, Maine, in February 2019 after a DNA hit that matched one of his aunt who posted her DNA to a Mm -hmm. genealogy website. And um, watch out, all you folks. Like, I don't think we have any serial killers in our family. If we um, do, you know what? Screw them. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, he was extradited to Alaska in 2020. The trial began today is January 15th. The trial began last Monday. So this is just a quick update. Say that trial is going on. And when it's done, maybe I'll do an episode, a a whole episode on him and what happened there. She deserves it. And then my longer update is... Jelaine Maxwell. Oh, Jelaine. Episode 78. She was convicted right after we recorded last time. So as I've said in previous episodes, we did not and do not plan to do the whole Jelaine, Jeffrey Epstein thing. Frankly, the thought of doing it exhausts me. And there's so much information out there. Yeah, that you can certainly find whatever you need to find. That said... We did do an episode, episode 78, about her being found in our neighboring state of New Hampshire (laughs) when she was arrested. So we feel compelled to update what's going on with her. First of all, as you well know by now, Maxwell was found guilty December 29th on five or six count that she was charged with conspiracy to entice a minor to travel to engage in illegal sex acts, enticing a minor to do the same conspiracy sex trafficking a minor, actual sex trafficking a minor. She was not found guilty of actual enticement of an individual under the age of 17 to travel with the intent to engage in illegal sexual activity. And I don't know what all the legal differences of all those different charges are, but we all know basically she was pimping for Jeffrey Epstein. (laughs) She faces anywhere from five to 40 years on each charge, some less than others. The worst one, it's 40 years. She's due to be sentenced in June, and she is still charged with two perjury counts for a deposition she gave in 2015 for a thing against Epstein. So those perjury charges may come up at some point. There's a lot going on with her case even though she was convicted, because that's what happens when wealthy white people go to trial. It doesn't end with the convictions. I won't go into all of it, but I'm going to limit this update to four topics. A juror issue that prompted her attorneys to try to dismiss the charges, Uh the fallout for Prince Andrew, the Uh release of John Doe names associated with victim Virginia Geoffrey's lawsuit, Uh 
and the bizarre or perhaps ignorant decision by the BBC to use dirtbag lawyer Dershowitz, who's not only being sued by Virginia Geoffrey, but represented Epstein in 2006. We'll get to that one. But first, the juror, because that's a quick one. One of the jurors told fellow jurors while they were deliberating, apparently, that he was sexually abused as a child and said he used the information to persuade other jurors that witnesses against Maxwell were credible. Hmm. He, um, he told this to the press after the trial. One of the big defense strategies was that the witnesses weren't credible and their memories weren't, and he used his experience to tell the other jurors that they were. Jelaine's lawyers are trying to use this to get the conviction thrown out, saying that the juror <laughs> didn't disclose the fact that he had been sexually abused during the voir dire questioning where they choose jurors. Apparently, one of the questions on the questionnaires that all the jurors were asked was if they'd ever been sexually abused. Mm. Um, he says he's pretty sure he answered it accurately. The judge hasn't ruled on this yet. That mm-hmm. said, as far as I'm concerned, the fact that victims are fighting an uphill battle to be believed skewed things as it always does to the prosecutor's favor. It's not clear yet if the juror lied on his questionnaire. I would think that would be easy to find out. But I think it'd be hard to get a jury where no one had been no sexually shit. abused or knew somebody if who was people are being abused. honest. Yeah, right. But I think if somebody can convince juries that witnesses who are under oath are actually credible when they talk about their sexual abuse we will take a big step because the default position seems to be that they're all making it up lying or remembering it wrong and which is idiotic because why would you next topic prince andrew well the chickens are coming home to roost for the privileged fella who used to be referred to with a little wink and giggle is randy Andy. Yeah. Now it's not so cute, is it? Prince Andrew, who apparently asked Jeffrey Epstein for money and favors over the years, has been stripped of his military titles and royal patronages after a judge ruled that a civil lawsuit by Virginia Jeffrey that charges that Andrew raped her when she was 17 at the behest of Epstein will not be dismissed and he'll have to testify in the lawsuit. The title strippage means, among other things, that he can't be called your royal highness, to which I say, big fucking deal. Royalty, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned, and longtime listeners know, is a false construct based on nothing but privilege, and we fought and won a revolution, so we wouldn't have it here in the United States, and I think it's all bullshit. What makes them so special? I know there are plenty (laughs) of U.S. citizens who get all giddy over the thought of royalty. I blame too many fairy tales and Disney movies and not enough education on the sins of colonialism and class society, but that's neither here nor there. Mm -hmm. What it means, actually, more to the point, is that Andrew was on his own as far as the lawsuit goes. If his TV interview in 2019 is any indication, and the panelists kind of shut him down after that interview... The adjective disastrous (laughs) to describe it. He has a long road to hoe. That's what a lifetime of privilege will get you when it's finally stripped away and you have to fend for yourself. Uh Uh-oh. Though let's not kid ourselves that he won't have a lot of money and high-powered lawyers behind him because he will. He's not really on his own. He's still a millionaire. Right. Right. He's not living under any fucking bridges. That's for sure. Mm. On the legal side, his lawyers had argued that a 2009 $500,000 settlement Jeffrey had with Epstein said that she wouldn't bring further legal action against Epstein or, quote, any other person who could have been included (laughs) as a potential defendant, which I think is kind of a slippery slope for somebody to claim. 
But a judge ruled January 12th that Andrew, who has denied the allegations by Geoffrey, can make his case for innocence in court, and also that the settlement's language is vague enough that it's not a legal argument. Hmm. There have been some good articles, by the way, particularly a recent one in Vanity Fair that detail Andrew's relationship with Epstein and Maxwell. There's also one in the Times of London I wanted to read, but as with most British publications, when it figured out I was American, it couldn't process my information, even though I was willing to sign up for a subscription. Fun fact, my zip code or postal code, as they call it in the UK, is similar to one in Liverpool. They thought I had a Liverpool address at first, but then when I couldn't pay with pounds, it all fell apart. Memo to British publications, make it easier for people who aren't part of your empire to get subscriptions. I mean, WTF, don't you want to make money? Some do, like the Sun, you know, the sleazy tabloids and some others, the Guardian and stuff have like American, but, you know, Times of London, I want a subscription. Telegraph, I want a subscription. I don't have pounds in my bank account. It's only good old U.S. You think dollars. That I've had that issue. I had that issue before. Well, let me subscribe. It's digital. This is 2022. It's a global world. I actually live closer to London than I do to Los Angeles, and I had no problem getting a subscription to the Los Angeles Times. Mm -hmm. Just saying. Anyway, on to the John Doe names. This is also related to Geoffrey's laws. I know. In a January 12th court filing, Geoffrey asked the court to unseal the names of eight John Doe's In the 2016 lawsuit against Epstein, that's the one that Jelaine perjured or allegedly perjured herself on. Jelaine Maxwell was fighting the release of the names, but has dropped it since she was convicted, saying the guys can fend for themselves. That's right, Jelaine. The the identities of the John Doe's, who were not parties to the lawsuit, were kept secret to protect them from embarrassment, and because many argued legally that the hassle in the media and from the public at being part of this being named in this would be undue burden for them. And I say too fucking bad. Right now they are known as John Doe's 17, 53, 54, 55, 73, 93, and 151. Any guy who had money and power who wanted to get his hard dick whacked was in Jeffrey Epstein's It makes me so angry. Yeah, and hmm, I wonder who these guys could be. There could be a couple former U.S. presidents among Mm -hmm. them, as well as some other privileged white guys, both from the U.S., the U.K., and other nations. There's lots of speculation. Of course, they all money and lawyers, so we'll see what happens. Now on to our final topic, Mm -hmm. which also includes money and lawyers, Alan Dershowitz. His name should be familiar to most of you. He's a lawyer who for many years specialized in criminal appeals and who taught at Harvard for five decades. He has a taste for big name clients who get themselves into criminal trouble. Everybody from Donald Trump to Patty Hearst, Mike Tyson, Leona Helmsley, Julia Assange, Jim Baker, Klaus von Bülow, Harvey Weinstein. He was part of the O.J. Simpson quote unquote dream team. If you see a a trend, a lot of those are um, people who commit crimes against women. Um, Mm -hmm. For our purposes here, he was Epstein's lawyer on a 2006 non-prosecution agreement and also, just as relevant, had been named by Geoffrey as one of the men who raped her under Epstein's umbrella. She has sued him, Dershowitz, and he has countersued her, neither of which has been resolved. With all this in mind, right after Maxwell was convicted, just hours after, the BBC decided he'd be the best quote-unquote constitutional lawyer to help analyze the case on TV. Apparently, 
despite the fact that anyone who's followed the case even slightly over the years knows that Dershowitz was a friend and lawyer of Epstein and also is being sued by the <laughs> best known of all Epstein's victims, Virginia Diafri, the BBC was clueless, apparently. Ah. Anyone with even the smallest amount of journalistic ethics and integrity would know that using Dershowitz was a giant honking conflict of interest. And of course, when they introduced him on the broadcast, no one mentioned his connections to Epstein or the lawsuit. And Dershowitz showed why you shouldn't have a guy who's a pal and possibly co-abuser on TV to do a legal analysis. Instead of doing a neutral analysis of the case, he went off on a big rant about Geoffrey. Jeffrey Uh did not testify at Maxwell's trial, was barely mentioned, and Maxwell's trial was ostensibly what Dershowitz was there to talk about, but that didn't stop him from ripping into her. He said that prosecutors probably didn't use her because they had concerns about her credibility, and he also said that the fact that they didn't use her undermined her credibility, kind of a circular argument. Uh Actually, the real meaning of begging the question, not the misuse that people have. Even after Dershowitz brought up his connection, the BBC guy didn't ask him about it or anything. Right afterwards, as the rest of the world went nuts over the whole thing, the BBC said the interview had breached its editorial standards, I should hope so, and that Dershowitz had not been, quote, a suitable person to interview as an impartial analyst. I love the way they're always so understated about shit. And three days ago, BBC general director Tim Davey said, quote, personal error unquote, was to blame for the whole fuck up. And he didn't mean his own personal error, by the way. Appearing before the House of Lords Communication and Digital Committee, it's kind of hard with the way things are written in Britain to tell, but apparently the lords and ladies gently asked him if job cuts, restructuring COVID and centralization had anything to do with it, kind of giving him a lot of excuses. I think that's how it went. I didn't watch it in the way the article was so worded that you know they never can come up right out and say anything straight although as an aside i say even if that did have anything to do with that how does that have anything to do with not knowing who you're putting on the air but davy said no it was a mistake that they looked at but didn't investigate and bottom line quote this was simply about the amount of due diligence that was done by the planner and the knowledge level of the person who was putting yeah. the person on air So in other words, throwing the program director or producer or whatever they have over there on their um, TV crew who makes the decisions under the bus, which, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't change anything about it. I don't understand how you can be someone putting news together for the BBC and not know to check your sources and who they are. I'm sure Dershowitz offered himself up, but still. Also, in irony, while I was reading this latest BBC story on their website, I got a pop-up asking me if I wanted to subscribe to, quote, Britain's most trusted news source. Yeah. Maybe later, mates. And uh, Becky, what do you think of all that? It was funny because I was on Twitter when that was airing. That's when I texted you or sent it to you. People were going nuts. They're like, what? Are you watching this? And I listened to the BBC in the morning on my way to work because it's on the radio the public radio and i usually like them and i usually i find them pretty trustworthy and pretty on the up and up i can't believe first of all just somebody doing an interview like that wouldn't you do like even a little bit of prep you would think it just astounded me even if they needed somebody they got him real fast the broadcaster had no idea who he was talking to or who he was somebody should have known and one thing i was listening 
it might have been on Real Crime Profiles. Laura Richards brought it up, and she mentioned, too, that there has not been a lot of coverage of Jelaine Maxwell's Mm -hmm. trial and stuff in the UK, despite the fact that Jelaine is a UK citizen and Randy Andy is involved. Mm -hmm. I guess I should stop calling him that because it's too cutesy. You know, it's not really, he's more like pervy Andy, but so it's possible it's deliberately not been covered because of of its embarrassment to the palace and and Robert Maxwell, even though he's dead, you know, Jelaine's father still Mm -hmm. has you know, tentacles that reach into, I've known for years, Alan Dershowitz was involved with this and it's not like I read everything about this case, but then I've known for years, Alan Dershowitz was a dirt bag and I wouldn't put him on my show if I had one. I know. So, I know. Same. But anyway. Uh, And like people who bring it up and try to implicate Bill Clinton. I'm like, you know what? If he's one of them, he might be one rip. of those chandos. I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. I don't either. I, was I don't a care fan who of it him is. As Misogyny, use of women as objects and not giving a shit whether a woman is of age or wants to have sex with you does not stick to one political no. party. It's the big boys club of white male wealthy privilege, in which some men of color who are allowed in that club, but mostly white men. The fact that this is still going on, we'll talk more about in many episodes on many topics, is because crime against women, even girls, and as Laura said, don't call them young women or underage women. They are girls. They're children. If they're underage women, that's so I know, I know. is not part of the equation. They just want to fuck something. And if they can do it, just like f- the former president Cheeto orange head said himself, can do whatever you want. But anyway, so speaking of women misogyny, yeah, you have an excellent episode. Yes, now, I do. You? So this came up because I was on Twitter like I often am. It was December 6th and somebody, probably one of my Canadian friends, posted about the anniversary of this massacre at the Ecole Polytechnique. Can I just add too, I think I texted you because I saw it, you know, I always read in the Boston Globe this day in history. Yes. And when I saw it, I texted you, I thought, and said, this had to have misogyny at its heart. And it does. So I'm going to go into it and then we'll we'll have lots to discuss. Oh, I'm sure we will. We always do anyway. Like you Mm -hmm. said, what was it last time we could discuss? A dust ball on the floor. (laughs) My information from this story came mostly from the Gazette of Montreal, Quebec. That's where your fluent French comes in handy. Uh, the Ottawa Citizen, that's thanks to newspapers.com. Yeah, uh, luckily it's in English. Also, a show from the CBC called The Fifth Estate from 1999 mm-hmm. called Montreal Massacre, Legacy of Pain. And several stories from CBC that I found on YouTube. There's actually a lot of information on YouTube. And if you click, we'll, we'll have some links. If you click one of them, all the other ones are going to come up. And there's... A lot of this story that I just couldn't, I didn't realize how much there was to it Mm. um, until I started doing it. And then there's a lot of stuff that came out of it that I only like brush over. So I hadn't heard much about it. I'm kind of ashamed to admit it. Like I said, I saw a tweet. It was on the 32nd anniversary. So I decided 
I would do it. So I would learn about it. You know, it's funny. I think even though we're so close to the Canadian border here, there seems to be like a news divide. The United States news, if you just watch like the national news, they're very American centric. And Maine is actually, we're surrounded on three sides by Canada. And many people who live in Maine and New Hampshire have relatives in Canada. I know. And before I start, this is a huge disclaimer. Please, to all the French speakers out there, especially our lovely neighbors in Quebec, I do not speak French. I know my pronunciations are going to suck. So please, please just forgive me in advance. Please keep that in mind. I'm trying. We are from the state that pronounces the town, city that should be called Calais, Calais. And if your name's Gilbert, it's Gilbert. Belanger. I mean, that's the way they roll here. Dagny. I'm trying, but I just want you to know, I feel bad. The last classes of the semester were being held before midterm exams started the following day. It was December 6, 1989 at the Ecole Polytechnique at the University of Montreal. At about 4 p.m., a young man in jeans, a gray anorak, and a Montreal tractor baseball cap came into the registrar's office and sat down. He had a plastic trash bag. Someone asked him if he needed help, and he said no, he was just waiting. After sitting about an hour, he left the office. A few minutes after 5 p.m., the same man entered a classroom on the second floor of the six-story engineering building and interrupted a class. He smiled and told everyone to stand up. At first, people laughed. They thought it was some kind of joke, and he pulled out his rifle. He raised his rifle and shot into the ceiling. The students and the professor complied. There were nine women in the classroom and about 50 men. The gunman told everyone he was there to fight feminism. He told the women they were feminists and he hated feminists. One of the women, Natalie Provo, said, no, she was just a student. They were all just students. He shot all nine women, killing six. Hmm. He went down the hall to another room and tried to shoot a woman twice, but the gun didn't work. Went to a stairwell, reloaded, and tried to shoot the now locked door open, but that didn't work, so he moved on. He shot and wounded others as he moved through the corridors of the classroom building. Maurice Lagnier worked in the financial office. She went to lock the door of the office when she heard the shots. The door lock had to be checked from the outside, so she opened the door a crack to engage the lock and check the knob. The shooter saw her open the door. Maurice was able to shut the door, and it locked, but the door had a narrow side light beside it, the kind with the wire grid. The shooter shot through the window and killed her as she ran from the door. The killer went down to the first floor cafeteria. There were dozens of people having dinner. He shot two people in the cafeteria and killed two women hiding in a closet off the cafeteria. He headed up to the third floor where he interrupted two students giving a presentation. He shot and killed two women who tried to escape, and then he shot at those hiding under the desk, wounding three and killing another. One of the women he shot, Maurice LeClaire, was at the front of the room. She was wounded and begged for help. The gunman took out a hunting knife and stabbed her three times, killing her. Then he said, oh, shit, and shot himself in the head. In the end, the killer, Mark Lapine, killed 14 women. Twelve of the women were engineering students. One was a nursing student. And the one I already told you about, Maurice Lagunier, was a university employee. But I am just want to say now there are several named Annie and two named Maurice. Okay. So there's a lot of having the same names. Thirteen people were injured, nine women, four men. Some sources say 14 people were injured, 10 women and four men. There was confusion at first, which is always the case in these situations. 
The emergency responders didn't know if the shooter was still in the building. Were there more shooters or just one? Police wouldn't let anyone enter the building until they knew what was going on. As a result, critics later said more victims died than should have. A man was brought out through the crowd handcuffed. Onlookers yelled insults at him, but he turned out not to be the shooter. And I couldn't find out any information as to why he was arrested, if he was arrested or who he was. He wasn't the shooter. There was only one shooter. Mark Lapine was the only person responsible, and he had planned this massacre and suicide for at least two months, probably more. At first, all police knew was the shooter's name was Mark. He had a three-page suicide note in his pocket, signed with just his first name. Jacques Deschneaux, who was head of organized crime for the Montreal Urban Community Police, which I'm going to call MUC, told the Gazette, all the words he uses are what you would call anti-feminist. Homicide chief Andre Tessier said he often seems to blame women for a certain number of failures in his life. In time, the details of Mark Lapine's life and who he was came to light. Mark was born October 26, 1964 in Montreal. His father, Rashid Lias Garbi, was Algerian and worked for a Swiss mutual funds company. Mark's mother, Monique Lapine, was a French-Canadian former nun and nurse. She probably got her nursing training while she was a nun, because a lot of nuns were nurses back then. Mark's given name at birth was Gamil Rodrigue Lias Garbi. Family moved around the world a lot when Mark was a baby, but by the time he was four, they had settled in Montreal. Mark had a younger sister, Nadia, who was two years younger. Mark's father, Rashid, or Lias, I think he was, people called him Lias, was abusive and misogynistic. He would not allow his wife to show any affection towards the children, saying it would spoil them. Monique's former sister-in-law, Louise, who is married to Monique's brother, said in an interview years later, the children will be locked in a room whenever Lias entertained his business associates and other male friends. A potty would be put in the room so they didn't have to come out to use the bathroom. Oh. Louise said of Monique, she'd be very exuberant at times and a lot of fun. Then other times she'd just be like in a closed shell and very cold. Lias forced Monique to be his personal secretary, though, as she told the court at her divorce proceedings, she was a, quote, two-finger typist. Monique told the court her husband would slap her on the back of the head if she made any typos to the point where she was dizzy and couldn't see. She would have to stay up all night doing his clerical work if he demanded it and ignore the needs of the children in favor of doing his work. Lies was a horrible philanderer and did nothing to hide it from Monique. She was embarrassed often by his behavior, which included making passes at everyone neighbors and friends he'd rub against them when he danced at like parties oh. and stuff and he would even do it to women on the subway which oh. is a ew she was like embarrassed to go anyway and they used to go to a lot of parties and stuff because yeah. his job it was kind of like a glamorous type of job and he liked to show off and they go to all these like expensive restaurants but they go to like fancy parties and stuff like they did oh. in the 60s he also beat his wife in front of people including according to Monique's sister, bashing Monique's head into a stone wall at a family party. What happened was he apparently didn't like a casserole Monique made, so he threw it out the window, dish included. When Monique went to retrieve it, he followed her outside and pushed her head into the wall in front of everybody a couple times. It was during the divorce proceedings that a lot of this stuff came out. Once when Monique came home late from being out with friends, Leas threw a drink in her face. In court, he said he never hit his wife, but then, quote, it is certain that occasionally in life, someone can receive a slap, but to hit someone and hurt them, no. Hmm. It's like, but no, I didn't hit her. Hmm. I just slapped her. 
Monique told the court during her divorce proceedings, quote, he was a very brutal man who did not seem to have any control of his emotions, end quote. In 1971, when Mark was seven, his parents legally separated. The divorce wasn't finalized until 1976. Monique apparently asked Lies to leave after having enough of his infidelity and abuse, especially his abuse of Mark, whose face was often marked and bruised from being hit. The judge from the divorce trial, Judge Jean Warren, and Jean Woman, because there are some Jeans, was interviewed on the Fifth Estate show and said she was so disturbed by his treatment, especially how he severely disciplined the children and would not allow Monique to console them. Flies defaulted on the family home mortgage shortly after the separation, so the apartment was repossessed, and Monique lost most of her possessions as well when they were seized. Lies made two child support payments, then stopped paying and never saw his children again. I think he took off and went back to Algeria, too. He didn't stick around. Monique went back to work as a nurse, as well as returning to school so she could further her career. Mark and Nadia lived with extended family during the week and saw Monique only on weekends. Although some people in the interviews I saw and read said that Monique was a cold and unaffectionate mother, She was concerned enough about her children to speak to a family psychiatrist in 1976. Some sources say they went to therapy for a year in 1975. She was told that although Mark was introverted and quiet, he was fine. But Nadia should have therapy since she was challenging her mother's authority. By the time Mark was 12, and I don't know if I mentioned it anywhere else, but Monique was concerned because especially Mark wasn't able to show affection. They had a hard time expressing Mm. the whole family did. I think that the people who are saying she was cold, I think they were just, they weren't understanding her personality. I don't think she was. I think she was concerned. I think she was PTSD. By the time Mark was 12, Monique had worked her way up to director of nursing at a hospital in Montreal. She bought a house in Pierrefonds, which is at the time was its own city, but now it's a suburb of Montreal. A neighbor of Mark's, Jean Belanger, was an outgoing young boy and in the same class. He befriended Mark and they stayed friends through middle school and high school. Because of his name, Gamil, Mark was bullied. He was also shy and withdrawn. He had bad skin, another reason for kids to tease him. His younger sister supposedly embarrassed him publicly about his acne, and Mark told his friends he wished she would die. Hmm. Now, about his sister, Nadia, I've read a lot of bad things about her. One article called her a thorn in his side. Hmm. But the things I read make her sound like a normal younger sister. For instance, when Mark was 14, he decided he wanted to be called Mark instead of Gamil. Nadia would tease him and call him Gamil. And I can't see any sibling not doing Mm, that. I know. I'm just saying a lot of people gave her shit and she was, she was two years younger than him. Can I say too, that people like in situations like that, when the person, the guy turns out to be like a mass killer or something will blame that type of like his sister teased and bullied him, but nobody ever turns around and says, well, you know, we have a lot of siblings, you get teased and bullied And I'm not saying that's great or how it should be, but it's his reaction to it that's the problem, not the fact that she was doing it. And we'll discuss it later. Mark was the new kid, had a funny name, and was very shy and insecure. Kids are horrible, Mm -hmm. um, and they will seize on any weakness and attack. I don't think this was the cause of his later actions, but I do think these experiences can be added to the overall shittiness of his life. And someone with his mental health issues 
would point to things like this as a reason for his later action. For a couple of years, Mark had a mentor, a big brother. Monique wanted him to have a positive male role model in his life. And for those of you unaware, the Big Brother Big Sister program started in 1913 in Canada, and it started in 1904 in America. Its purpose is to provide children in need with adult mentors who are volunteers that a lot of times it is for kids who are can maybe have an economic need for it or don't have a parent. According to Mark's childhood friend, Jean Belanger, as written in the Montreal Gazette, the big brother was a guy in his 40s who was fun and included Jean in his activities with Mark, which included photography, taking them to the movies and motorbikes, stuff like that. When he suddenly disappeared... Mark told, and they, it was for like two years. He had this big brother. Mark told Jean conflicting stories that the guy went to Europe. He was gay. Uh, He went to jail for sexual assault of a minor. Jean never knew what the truth was. And I wasn't able to find anything definitive. Who knows? The guy could have just moved away. I don't know. Right. When he was in eighth grade, Mark told his friend, Jean Belanger, he wanted to go by a different name. He was going to change his surname to Lapine, like his mother. Jean said, he said he wanted my name, Jean, too. Jean Lapine. I said that would be too confusing, Jean and Jean, because we were together all the time. So he thought for a minute and said, okay, how about Mark? Mark Lapine. And it was then Mark decided that was his name. And he started going by that name and signing it in his schoolwork. At age 18, he went to court and legally changed his name. Mark was interested in electronics. He and his friend Jean spent a lot of time in the Belanger basement with Jean making electronic stuff out of odds and ends and like building computers and stuff mm. like that. And this was in the 70s, just so you know, it was because he's the same age. He would have been in my class. He was born later in the year, the year before me. So I think he graduated the same year as me from high school. The two boys also enjoyed shooting pigeons with pellet guns. Mm. Mark was the better shot. Mm-hmm. According to Jean, He wasn't like, yeah, I want to kill. It was just fun. We were kids. We each had a pellet gun. And when the pigeons would fly up from their perch, pow, he was better than me. He could shoot one while it was flying. He didn't miss a lot. One of the relatives Mark spent time with was an uncle who had been a paratrooper and marksman in the military. He showed Mark how to shoot a rifle. Mark was described as a good but not outstanding student. One of his middle school math teachers said he was very usual, average, plain, typical. His high school teacher, Robert Willette, told the Gazette he was really, as the English say, middle of the road. He wasn't a student who spoke a lot, but he wasn't a student to hide in the corner. Among the average students, he was average. (laughs) If you told me that a guy who was my student had done that, I would have thought a lot of other names before coming up with his. This was obviously after the massacre. Mm -hmm. When they started high school, Jen started dating girls and encouraged Mark to ask girls out. But, Jen said, he had a lot of problems with that. It's not that he wasn't interested. Maybe the way he approached women wasn't exactly the way women like. According to several sources, the way Mark talked to women was bullying, bragging, and being a know-it-all. Not surprisingly, they didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And you know that kind of guy, insecure. Oh, yeah. you know. I think one was president of this country for (laughs) Mark was very interested in war movies and Adolf Hitler. Uh uh, I will say a lot of kids, especially boys of his generation, uh, like our brother, Jimmy, Uh were interested in those type of things, too. He didn't adore Adolf Hitler, but he did read about him. He also read Mark liked science fiction, surprisingly enough. 
Mm-hmm. In 81, when he was 17, Mark went to a recruiting office in downtown Montreal and applied to be a member of the Canadian Armed Forces. He was rejected. According to the official statement, Mark was interviewed, assessed, and determined to be unsuitable. Mark's sister Nadia had been sent to what I've read in some places was a boarding school and other places as a program for troubled teens. She was still around her home a lot. And so was her boarding school roommate, Isabel LaHaye. Isabel told the Ottawa citizen, Mark was a good guy, but he was closed. He had a strange look. His eyes were lit up. He had the same smile all the time. You could see he was unhappy. Isabel also said that Nadia was cruel to Mark. I'm not going to defend Nadia, but I also read a lot of shit about her, like I said, implying that she contributed somehow to his hatred of women. But the way I see it, she grew up in the same environment Mark did, the abuse and the violence. Mark was the target of his father more than Nadia, and she learned to bully him. I'm not saying it was right, but I'm also not going to lay the blame on what he did on his bitchy sister. And also any outside observer or even inside observer could take any incidents from people's life and paint a certain picture mm-hmm. any one of us could be painted one way or I the know, other depending on who's talked to and around the same time monique sold her home in pierre Fonds and the family moved to saint laurent to be closer to her work at saint jude de laval hospital mark's friendship with jean belanger didn't survive the move they were still teenagers they didn't have cars and it was different back then without the internet Jean said, Mark didn't seem very happy there. We had been together for so long. I guess maybe he was lonely. Mark enrolled in a community college in St. Laurent the fall of 1982. His major was science, but he planned to use that two-year course to springboard himself into an engineering course later. He failed two courses his first semester, but he did better his second semester. He also worked part-time in the kitchen at the hospital where his mom was director of nursing. A young woman he worked with, Dominique Leclerc, befriended Mark. She said in the Ottawa Citizen, I was kind to him because he was so hyperactive and nervous. Nobody would talk to him at lunch or break time. Everyone else tried to avoid him because he was a bit strange and because of his shyness. He was always rushing things. He would never be calm. Mark got a job serving food in the cafeteria and the humidity and the greasiness exacerbated his acne, which had always been an issue for him. Dominique said, the employees would say they didn't want him to serve them their lunch because of his acne. They were mean. Mark tried to grow a beard to cover his acne, but it didn't help. Dominique said that Mark told her, I've asked out a lot of girls, but they have all refused. I know so many girls, but they won't go out with me. I'm not good looking. Now, I know he probably did tell her that, but also I doubt it's true that I doubt he asked out a lot of girls. Uh, It doesn't sound like he did. No. Of course, he's probably, you know, bragging. He's working Mm -hmm. with this girl. In the fall of 1983, he switched his major to electronics. He did well in his classes, but in the middle of the last semester... In the spring of 1986, he just stopped attending classes. It isn't clear why he thought he had enough credits to apply at the Ecole Polytechnique, but in 1986, he did just that. But he was rejected because he didn't have enough credits. He was told he would have to finish two courses to be considered. He worked more hours at the hospital and moved out into his own apartment. His landlord, Luke Rapol, said he was a good guy. But he lived in isolation and he did not appear very happy. He told me he didn't like working at the hospital. It was not what he wanted to do for a living. It was just a job for him. His real interest was in computers and war books. He had a lot of war books. Mm -hmm. But he did pay his rent on time and was relatively clean and didn't bother the neighbors. 
He took some courses at the community college in Montmorency, then took a class at a private school called Control Data Institute in Montreal, paid for by student loans. And though he did very well in these classes, again, he dropped out before completing the course. He returned his books and said he was pursuing another field. One of his professors was bewildered by his choice to leave. He thought Mark was very good at what he was doing and had a future. Mark still wanted to apply the Ecole Polytechnique, and he moved to an apartment that was even closer to it at 2175 Rue de Bordeaux. He shared an apartment with someone he knew from high school, Eric Cosette. On the Fifth Estate CBC News Magazine show titled Montreal Massacre, Legacy of Pain, mm-hmm. journalist Francine Pelletier visited Mark's old apartment with his former roommate, Eric Cosette, and Eric's twin sister, Anika. Eric and Anika told how Mark had his computer on one side of the room and all his books, quote, oh yes, he read a lot. Eric said. Eric said Mark read mostly science fiction, history, and poetry. Anika remembered as she looked at the closet how Mark had hardly any clothes. She teased him by saying, what, do you only have two pairs of pants? And Mark replied, well, I don't need much. Eric and Anika said Mark was very closed off and didn't talk about his family life. Anika said, if someone were to tell the Mark Lapine story a day before the massacre, everybody would have pitied him. But then you have this massacre, and the next day he's a monster to everyone. Nobody wants to hear the story. What he did was so terrible, but this was a youngster suffering, suffering, deep, deep suffering, and there's nothing we could do for him. Eric Cosette, Mark's old roommate, said of Mark's upbringing, it was very severe. His mother didn't talk a lot. It was austere. And those two, their first language was French. So their English wording is kind of... Mm -hmm. But they were speaking right. English. Some of the other quotes I have were French that were translated to English. Anika Cosette remembered in September of 1989, she was leaving to spend a year in South America and her brother also was going. She said Mark stood on the balcony of the apartment when she and her brother left. Quote, the whole time watching us, he looked sad. He looked very sad. And I was driving and looked around and he was still here. And he followed us till the last second. And that was it. And then this week, actually, I was at home and I said, oh, my God, maybe he knew. He probably knew that we wouldn't see one another again, that he would die. Eric said in the Ottawa Citizen that Mark was emotionally repressed, but he was always willing to help a friend. Doing favors was his way of expressing his affection for people. And even though Mark had tons of gun magazines, quote, it was an interest like any other, according to Eric. Hmm. Eric left in September of 1989, like I said, with his sister to go on a hiking trip in South America. Mark's younger cousin, Michael Terry, moved in. Some sources say Mark got fired from the hospital and he was enraged and told people he was going to return and kill people and then himself. Other sources say he left to go back to school. In any case, people who knew him said that he was unpredictable and liable to blow up when everything didn't go his way. I do wonder how truthful some people are after the fact. If they asked his former co-workers after the mass murderer, I'm not sure how accurate those stories are. According to Dominique, his co-worker, the one that was nice to him, she left the job before Mark did, but she still kept in touch with people who were there. Mark quit, but he would probably quit right before he got fired. He was about to get fired, so he just left. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark attended his fifth high school reunion in 1988, hoping to see his old friend, Jean Belanger. Jean wasn't there, but Jean's former girlfriend, Gina Cousineau, was there and spoke to Mark. 
She was Jean's first girlfriend and she and Mark had been friendly. They had been like three, you know, she spent a lot of time with both of them. Gina said in the Ottawa Citizen, he looked like he always looked that big smile. He always had that smile on his face, even if things weren't going so well. Mark told Gina he had had a girlfriend, but she dumped him. Hmm. Gina asked him about his job, quote, He told me he had just lost his job and was going back to university in the fall. He didn't mention which one. He said he made one small mistake during his three-month probationary period and bang, they told him to get lost. He told me he'd been fired by a woman and that another woman had taken his place. He was really mad about it. This is Rebecca. This story is bullshit since he had worked there for a couple years. But I have a feeling a lot of what Mark told people was bullshit, especially women. Mark's roommate, Eric, didn't like Mark's constant sexist remarks, but he figured a lot of it was due to sour grapes and the fact Mark seemed unable to have a relationship with a woman. Eric thought Mark should spend less time on his computer and watching more movies and more time socializing. At one point, Mark had another roommate named Mark Turner, just to make things more complicated. Mark was interviewed on TV 10 years later on the Fifth Estate show. Mark T, I'll call him, was a former high school friend of Mark Lapine. He said in his interview, Mark didn't take pleasure in many of the things that normal people would take pleasure in. He definitely had a great mind. He was knowledgeable on many subjects, ranging from history to technology. He was fascinated by many, many things, and he just loved to talk to you about a subject he knew something about. You just had the impression that he was, I guess, a bit different, not as sociable as some people, and I guess a bit closed. And you probably had the impression somewhat that he was hiding something. But I mean, if he had the capacity to kill 14 women, that's something he kept very well hidden in. (laughs) One thing Mark Lapine liked was paintball. Mark Turner said just to see him getting into this type of game was sort of unusual for him to be so openly happy about doing something. To see him do some running and jumping and trying to kill as many people as he could (laughs) with the paintballs was sort of eerie considering what he did later on. It's like you think so? In the spring semester of 1989, Mark took a chemistry course at the community college CEGEP Vaux Montreal, which was a prerequisite for acceptance at the Ecole Polytechnique. He met a class named Sylvie Druin, who asked Mark to be her lab partner. She thought he was kind of cute. Mark turned out to be annoying and boorish. Sylvie told the Ottawa citizen, he was very severe with me. I was never correct. He was being a fascist. The (laughs) lab was never done well enough. He was always right. And he was giving me these orders all the time. Wash those things. Don't do that calculation like that. Go and get something. He would call her Fraulein. Hmm. She finally told him if he didn't smarten up, he could find a new partner and his behavior improved. Sylvie said Mark was nervy and agitated, quote, he was good at theory, but at practical things, he was no good. He was so nervous he would make mistakes. His mind would wander. He would put too many drops in the solution, that kind of thing. Sylvie asked Mark to help her with a computer course she was taking. She asked if she could come to his apartment so he could help her. Mark agreed. Sylvie said he was really pleased to help. He needed to feel important to other people. They spent a lot of evenings together at his place, but he wasn't a good teacher. Quote, in the beginning, he was a lot of fun. I remember the first time I walked in, he told me to sit in the chair and he showed me all these things he could do on the computer, colors, three-dimensional stuff, that kind of thing. But as for helping her, He didn't want to do them, meaning the problems with me. He didn't teach me. He just wanted to solve the problems himself and hand them to me. He never really talked about his family to her. He just said, oh, I have a mother in Montreal. That's all. 
Sylvie said. When they first met, Sylvie asked Mark if he had a girlfriend. He was surprised that I would even ask the question. He got mad. He said, what do you want to know that for? So I shut up. As for their relationship, it remained platonic. Mark always walked Sylvie to the bus stop at the end of their visits. While she initially thought he was cute, she changed her opinion about him once she knew him. She said, I think in his mind, the girl has to worship everything he does. And everything he does is right. Like in those first few labs. If you follow him in his ways, things are fine. If you don't, there is nothing. He gets very cold and withdrawn. I like the different kind, not wackos, but different. But to be with a guy like that, you would have to give your whole life with him. Just follow him, end quote. And I want to say that <laughs> I picture all these quotes as people with like French Canadian accents. I know, me too. Oh, I do too. But I can't do one and I won't try because I don't want people Near the end of their chemistry classes, Sylvie said Mark was becoming more withdrawn and quiet. Sylvie invited Mark out, quote, once we had a party on the Thursday night in a bar downtown and I asked him if he wanted to come. He was alone and he seemed very down. He just said, no, I don't drink and I never go in that kind of place. There was no discussion. Once when she was at Mark's place, he asked her if she wanted to watch a movie with him on his VCR. Sylvie said, they were pretty well all violent stuff, not just war films, but science fiction, police movies. I told him I didn't like violence and I went home. The last time she saw him was May of 1989, a week after their chemistry class ended. Sylvie told him she had been accepted to the engineering program at the Université du Québec at Trois-Rivières. How's that? Mark told Sylvie he would be attending the Ecole Polytechnique that fall. Sylvie later said, I had come away from there with a very strange feeling like I would never see him again, that I didn't want to see him again, and I didn't. I told him I might call him that summer, but I never did. Mark Turner, the former roommate, said, I think he probably did feel rejected by women because he never had any. Perhaps his fear comes from the fact that women give you emotions, and he was not an emotional type of guy. Uh I did talk to him about that. I mean, I've asked him, like, how would you feel if your mother died and you went to the funeral? You wouldn't feel like expressing emotions. And he was like, oh, no, there was no way he would show any emotion. He'd be as hard as a stone. Eric Cosette, fellow classmates of Mark's and even people who worked at the grocery store near his apartment were all familiar with Mark's opinions on women doing traditionally male jobs. He didn't like it. He really didn't like it. And Mark would do things like change an anti-drunk driving poster that said drunk drivers are dangerous to female drivers are dangerous. (laughs) Once he brought a newspaper into his chemistry class and showed everyone an article about something heroic a policewoman had done. He told his classmates women were not physically able to be police and they were taking the place of men. He said he'd researched it and there were six women on the Montreal police force. His classmates just rolled their eyes. Another thing besides paintball Mark liked was visiting the local sporting goods store, Checkmate Sports. One of the clerks told the Gazette, he used to come in like many young punks browsing around. He didn't appear crazier than anybody else. He seemed like a happy guy. I guess he felt good here. It isn't a place where you see a lot of women. It's like a boys club, toys for boys. Mm. Also, Checkmate Sports tried to say he didn't buy his gun there, but there was some controversy about where he bought his gun and checkmate sports was like, he didn't buy it here. And he, I think he did buy it there. They tried to deny it. And then they proved that they were wrong on September 5th, 1989, Mark applied for a firearms acquisition permit on November 21st. He bought a Ruger mini 14 rifle and hundred rounds of ammo at checkmate sports. Mark chose the cheapest ammunition 
which are solid slugs. And I just want to say right now, I know absolutely nothing and I don't want to know about guns and ammunition. So if any of my information is wrong, sorry, I don't care. So he chose the cheapest ammunition, which are solid slugs instead of the kind that explode inside the target, which a lot of hunters like those because they kill mm-hmm. them. Checkmate store owner, Gilbert Rosenberg, later told the news if Lapine had known what he was doing when he was buying the shells, the 13 people injured would be dead today. It's mm. like, oh, thanks for that information, Gilbert. Yeah, next guy. Why didn't you do tell it, him right? that? Yeah, I know. Mark was seen wandering around the second floor of the Ecole Polytechnique on November 22nd. December 1st, December 4th, December 5th. He rented a car on December 5th. On December 6th, Mark Lapine drove his rented car to the Ecole Polytechnic. He parked in the tow zone. He knew he wasn't coming back. That same day, William Windegard, the Minister of State for Science and Technology, was visiting the Ecole Polytechnic to celebrate the fact that female enrollment was at a record 19% for the first-year engineering students. He talked about a new scholarship that would bring more young women into the field. When Mark first entered room 303 on the second floor of the Ecole Polytechnique and told the students to stand up and separate by gender, Professor Yvonne Bouchard said, nobody moved. We thought it was a joke. The other professor in the room, Adrian Sierna, said, he told us very coolly in French to please divide into two parts, one on the left and one on the right. He was very determined. He had cool eyes. He was very professional with his gun. Everyone was afraid and did what he believed he had to do. We did not believe he was a madman. His words were so clear. And can I just ask, those sound like women's names, but those are both men, right? Men. Yvonne both men. And- All the professors are men. Eric Shavari was giving a final presentation at the front of the class. He told the Montreal Gazette, he came in quietly and told us to stop what we were doing. Everyone thought it was a joke. He was smiling at us. He was very calm. Another student, Pierre Robert, said, it was our last hour of term. We practically laughed. Eric Shavari said, then he fired a shot right by my ear. It took them a while because they were confused, but they did separate into male and female groups as he ordered. After the fact, people criticized the male students and professors. I think some of the men, like one of the professors mentions in one of the later interviews on TV, which I didn't, I watched after I had written this a couple different things. He said that a lot of them thought he was going to shoot the men. That's why he was separating the women out. They didn't realize. What, and you can't, right. you don't know. When somebody has a gun like that, you know, it's not like some stupid movie or something. I know. That's what other people said. They're not. not, You're just going to be another dead person. Yeah. Then he said, okay, guys leave, girls stay there. And the men left. Mark asked the nine women if they knew why he was there. Natalie Provo spoke up and said, no. Mark said, I'm here to fight feminism. Natalie said, look. We're just women studying engineering, just students intent on leading a normal life. Mark answered, you're all a bunch of feminists. And he opened fire. In a later TV interview, Natalie said that after he opened fire on the women and killed six of her classmates, she was able to get up despite having been shot in the head and legs. She went to the door and opened it a crack and saw that Mark was still in the hall. Professor Serna later said, all the girls from the class, they were either killed or wounded because they were there. As the men fled, Mark shot at them as they ran, wounding some. Eric Shavari said he fired three or four shots in the hall, and I saw three or four men go down. I'm not sure if they were hit or if they were just trying to get away. One witness heard Mark Lapine say, I want the women. I want the women. Rita Bellos, an engineering student, said, who's a guy, said, it must be a joke. Then the person next to him fell to the floor, bleeding. 
Rita ran. He said, I saw him bleeding. Everyone was screaming and crying and trying to run away. Mark went down the second floor hallway shooting at a group of people gathered at the photocopiers. Three were wounded. Three students were working in the engineering school's newspaper, the Polyscope's office on the second floor when they heard gunfire. They thought it was a firecrack. And then they heard a woman screaming, help, help, I'm going to die. As another shot rang out, they double locked the office door and crouched on the floor. One of the students told the Gazette he counted 20 shots. Another of the students said, we had to rely on the telephone for information. We tried to call friends to find out what was going on. There was no way we were going to get out of that office. One woman went out to see what was going on and she never came back. We know now where she is. She went right home. One of them said, I was really surprised that something like this could happen in Quebec. I thought this kind of thing happened in California, not Quebec. A little <laughs> side note. Yeah, Canada has had its share of mass shootings. Yeah. Not as many as the U.S., but before this one, there were at least seven since the 1970s. And then in July 2021, there was an even worse mass shooting in Nova Scotia, which I'll talk a little bit about later. Mm. But, um, it can happen anywhere. There's easy access to guns, as I'm right. sure we all can agree. On the fourth floor, two master's students Karine Laga and Marie Elena Aguilar, which were both women, were working in their office when someone crashed through the door looking for a place to hide, telling the women someone was downstairs shooting at people. Maria thought it was a joke at first, but the three students hid in the office until the building was evacuated later by police. Maria ran home so fast she forgot her house keys. The first 911 call came in at 5.11 p.m. The caller said, there is hostage shaking, there is gunfire, and there are lots of people wounded. Soon calls clogged the emergency communication system. But Mark still stalked the halls of the building looking for victims. That was where he encountered Marie Slagonair, the one who locked, tried to lock the door, and he shot her through the sidelight. She was shot twice. One bullet in the head killed her. Mark took the escalator down a flight to the first floor cafeteria. Barbara Kluzneck had just bought her dinner and was paying at the cashier and her husband was with her. Barbara was shot in the lower back. And as the bullet ripped through her internal organs, the force of the gunshot spun her around and the second shot went into her left breast close to where the first bullet Ugh. exited. Mark weighed his way through the cafeteria, killing two more women and wounding another. Emmanuel Biss a master's student in engineering told the Gazette, I had just put down my tray. A guy ran in and said, there's a nut shooting. We thought it was a joke. Then we heard two shots. I rolled to the ground to get out. Everyone was pushing to get out. I saw him from the back running down the hall. I got outside. I don't even know how I got here. Claude Lavoie, a third-year civil engineering student, told the paper he was about to pay for his meal when the manager ordered everyone out of the cafeteria. Quote, then he, meaning Mark, was inside. I saw him shoot twice. He shot at the people who were going out. Claude ran into the kitchen with dozens of others. He said the cook was waiting for him in the kitchen with a knife. Then Mark Lapine made his way up to the third floor. By that time, police had arrived. Mm -hmm. They cordoned off the building. Ambulances were still on the way. Mark roamed the corridors, shooting and wounding three more students. At the end of the hall, there was a presentation in progress on engineering materials. Eric Forgay, Maurice Leclerc, and Roger Tafal were all giving their final presentation to the class. They heard the gunfire but weren't sure what it was. Eric Forgay told the news, we thought it was something falling on the ground. Everyone looked around. We wondered what it was, but we didn't realize it was gunshots. A few minutes later, Mark Lapine burst into the room with his Ruger rifle yelling, get out, get out. At first, Eric thought it was a toy. Then Mark shot Maurice Leclerc. While the men ran for cover, Mark turned and shot at the classroom, targeting Maude Havernick and Michelle Richard as they tried to get away. 
Both young women died. Mark went down the aisle firing between the rows of desks where people hid shooting Annie Turcott. He stopped to reload and a couple of students ran out. Mark climbed a chair and stomped over the desk shooting down at the people hiding under them. Maurice LeClaire was still alive at the front of the classroom. She was having trouble breathing. The shots had shattered her ribs and punctured her lungs. She asked for help. Mark approached her, withdrew his hunting knife, and stabbed her three times in the heart, killing her. He put the knife down along with his baseball cap and the rest of his ammunition on the professor's desk. He took off his anorak and wrapped it around the gun. He said, oh shit, and then shot himself in the head, blowing the top of his head off. Someone later speculated on one of the things I was watching that he knew he was going to kill himself, but the reason he decided to at that time was after stabbing Maurice LeClaire, that act really brought home to him what he was doing at first he was just shooting people but actually stabbing somebody it was just before 5 30 p.m when the killing ended by then there were dozens of police and vehicles surrounding the building police entered the building at 5 35 p.m after they heard from someone that the shooter had killed himself however there was still confusion outside among the family members friends and press waiting for answers as the freezing rain turned into sleet and then snow people heard various things that the gunman was holding people hostage and was still alive that one person had died. The SWAT team went in about 7.15 p.m. And about 15 minutes later, more armed police went into the building. At 8.30 p.m., Louis Corvell, acting school director, came out to address the crowd. He asked if there were any parents in the crowd, but there weren't. Then he told the press, there are at least a dozen dead. All the dead are students and the gunman has killed himself. Mary Lamy, who was a Gazette writer sent to cover the minister's visit, and now was covering a mass shooting, told Jack Todd, a Gazette columnist, I'd hate to be a parent right now. Catherine Oriel, a 24-year-old anthropology student, said she and other women she talked to were frightened by the shooting. She said maybe he was angry and frustrated and hates girls because he thinks they're stealing his job. Pierre Leclerc was the head of public relations for the Montreal Urban Community Police. He was the public face of the MUC police. That evening, he was giving interviews to the press, and he told them he would go into the building to see what was up. In a television interview 10 years later, he said, and this was French that was translated, so, you know, I didn't think about it. I knew Maurice was in there that night, but things were going so fast. I never, never, never thought that Maurice could be one of the victims. Here I am in front of my daughter who is dead, and the guy who killed her is lying beside her. He's committed suicide. What do you do with that? I really don't know what to do with that. Lynn Moore was a reporter for the Montreal Gazette. She tagged along behind some plainclothes police, and she must have been pretty young at the time because in the interview was 10 years later and she didn't look that old. She was the only reporter to go into the building. She said, as soon as we were in the building, he, the officer, went one way and I went the other, sort of up the stairs. On the second floor, there was an open area, sort of a common area, a lounge. People, sort of like ghost-like, were walking around the edges of the lounge. Lynn walked down the hall and looked into an open doorway. She said, in that classroom on the floor were two bodies. One was a male and he had a rifle across his legs. The other was a young blonde girl and they were both lying there relatively close together in a pool of blood. She was wearing a sweater. And it's funny about that sweater because that's what I focused on for some reason. I remember thinking, okay, that morning, was it her mother, her father, her friend that said, you know, you should really wear that sweater. It's cold out. Pierre Leclerc said, it surprised me to see that sweater because she had come to the house for supper on the Sunday before and she was wearing it then. She had bought it for Christmas. So right away when I saw the sweater, I thought of all this and realized it was her. Lynn Moore got on a payphone to call her editor. 
One of the college security guards saw her. She said, I could just see him get really tense and angry. And he says, are you crazy? Don't you know they're killing women here tonight? Maurice Lagonaire's husband, Jeff, had come to pick his wife up at the school. He waited four hours trying to find her. He had graduated from the school himself a few years before. He saw one of his old professors coming out of the building. Jeff said in an interview, so I asked him, did you see Maurice? Do you know something, you know? And he looked at me with that look that I cannot describe. And when I saw his look, then I knew that something bad, very bad had happened. And he said nothing, just said nothing, basically. Monique, Mark's mother, said she had last seen him on December 2nd, and he seemed his usual self. Mm -hmm. The day after the shooting, Thursday, December 7th, there was a vigil honoring the victims. An estimated 5,000 people showed up. Annie Gerard told the Gazette, I am here because I don't know what else to do. How are you supposed to react to something like this? And she was like a student or somebody. Nothing prepares you for such savagery, end quote. Leona Healing, who worked at the Montreal Assault Prevention Center, said, I think a lot of the women here tonight are saying it could have been me. Women are really, really terrified today. I think that what happened is an extreme example of the violence women live with all the time. The Student Association wanted the vigil to remain silent, but there were women among the vigil attendees who wanted to read a statement. When the crowd reached the Polytechnique building, there was an argument. And in the newspaper, it says the feminist wanted to read a statement. <laughs> Nicola Plourd, who is a guy, but his name's Nicola, a secretary of a student association, told the crowd, we are here to remember our friends, loved ones, and colleagues, and especially those that have died. This was in French. And Nicola used the male pronoun, so, I think it is, C-E-U-X. So I think it's so. So he used the male pronoun when he talked about the victims. A woman in the crowd shouted, it is women who are dead. God damn it. They are 14 women. Another woman, a second year commerce student, Joanna Prudham, took the microphone and said, we are not here to make distinctions. It's not about male or female. We're here to be together. We're here because we want to show sorrow and because we want to share pain. This gesture is too beautiful to be tarnished by fighting. Brian Mulroney, prime minister at the time, sent the statement, this is a national tragedy. We are all horrified by what has happened. I extend my heartfelt condolences to the families and friends of the victims and wish the students here courage. Later, at a mass for the victims, a mourner, Christine Nault, said, I hope the killer comes face to face with God. I'm a true Christian. I go to church and I pray. I can't understand how this could happen to those women for no reason. Next to her, an older woman added, we did not ask to be born women. Why kill us for it? And the days after people tried to make sense of the crime, MUC police director Jacques Deschneau said he wasn't successful in his studies and he was fired from one of his jobs. Hmm. Andre Tessier, head of the MUC police homicide unit, said he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, and it seems like he didn't take drugs. But he had an obsession for things dealing with war, particularly movies and for electronics. He almost always wore a baseball cap to cover his curly hair. I don't really understand that no. curly hair, but yes, he did always wear a baseball cap. That was mentioned several times. Jacques Deschneaux told the press that much of Lapine's disappointments in life were due to the fact that he couldn't have a relationship with a woman. And don't worry, we'll talk about this later. <laughs> Jacques said he was at first gentle and courteous until the relationship didn't go his way. 
Then he'd stop the relationship right there. And this is Rebecca here saying, from what I gathered, he never had any relationships with women. And Mark's suicide letter, which I'll talk about later, he listed 15 prominent women he wished, oh, I think it was 19, sorry, he wished he could kill. One of them was reportedly CKAC sports journalist, Danielle Rainville, and she had a like a sports radio show. She told the Gazette, I started trembling and made me realize this could happen to anyone. I've often been told to go back to the kitchen. This demonstrates that there are men who don't accept women in traditionally male roles. One of Mark's neighbors described as an elderly woman who lived below him told the newspaper, he looked like a recluse, an introvert, but he did not look like a killer. Then again, they never do, do they? Mark lived on the second floor. The neighbor lady had called police at least three times in the two years Mark lived there because of loud music, which frankly isn't really that much. Three times, two years. Quote, when he saw me outside, he'd run up or down the stairs to avoid me. He knew I had called the police, end quote. And again, this is Rebecca. Mark did seem to have roommates most of the time he lived there. So how do we know it was him blasting the music? Right. Mark had another neighbor, Chantelle Dumas. Her dining room window faced his. The building is U-shaped with the front room sharing a wall. My first apartment had this, the front room share a wall. And there's two like things that come out and there's like this narrow kind of alleyway in between them. My first apartment, my kitchen faced my neighbor's. Our windows were about six feet apart, so we used to throw stuff at each other. And my roommate's bedroom faced one of the guy's bedrooms, and he used to throw stuff at her window to see if she'd open her curtains, but she never did. So his seems to have the same type of thing. Anyway, Chantel said Mark had what looked like a skull on his bookcase in the dining room. Quote, it was the same size and color as a human skull. I thought it was disgusting, end quote. She also felt like he could see into her bedroom sometimes from his apartment. And she often heard someone blowing their nose loudly and quote laughing like crazy it seems strange to hear only one person laughing end quote and my reaction to this is he could have been watching something or listening to something on headphones and reacting to it so yeah it might right. sound weird to hear someone laughing but come yeah. on i think some of these reporters were just picking anybody to talk to maurice duchesac mark's landlord said mark always mailed his rent check $285 before the first of the month. Every month, Maurice told the Gazette, quote, except for December. I haven't received the rent for this month. I tried calling him in the last two days and there was never any answer. I never saw any weird posters or weapons in his apartment. He was not a druggie. He was very polite, quiet. That is why I'm so surprised that he did this, end quote. At other universities in Quebec, people in the engineering departments weighed in. Pierre Balanchet, Dean of Engineering at McGill University, said these girls were shot because they were engineering students, women in a decidedly non-female profession. That's why I get cold shivers, because it could have happened here. I hope this won't have a lasting effect, meaning on women joining the field. Mm. But I fear it will pour cold water on them. Srikanta Swami, Dean of Engineering at Concordia University, said, this is a terribly tragic episode. It clearly shows that we have to educate people, not just in engineering, but throughout society about women and women's issues. There you go. Finally. The two deans and others interviewed said that sexism seemed much more pervasive in English Canadian schools over French Canadian schools, and it hadn't been much of an issue at the Ecole Polytechnique. For instance, some of the English Canadian engineering schools got in trouble because their student papers had misogynist writings and pornographic cartoons. This never happened at Polytechnique. The Student Association of Eight Students was seven women and one man. 
One young woman, a 20-year-old student, said the shooting was just an isolated incident. I'm not afraid. I'm just asking myself why. Well, look around, lady. Leaders around the country expressed their sympathy and horror at the events of December 6th. Quebec Premier Robert Barassa said, This morning, all of Quebec is afflicted with a grief as cruel as it is painful. This carnage that seems to have been motivated by reasons as absurd as they are futile constitutes a barbarous, tasteless, and intolerable act. Over and above all that has been written and said yesterday, we must remember that the life of a human is precious and our society will not tolerate that it be threatened or destroyed, just as it cannot accept that violence becomes an outlet for folly and hopelessness. As a father, I find it particularly disturbing that the parents will forever be deprived of the presence and love of their children, which was a precious source of happiness and pride. In Toronto, the day after the shootings, hundreds gathered around the crucifixion woman statue at the University of Toronto, and I mm. had to look it up. Just a side note, this statue was originally installed in 1976 in the sanctuary of Bloor Street United Church in Toronto. That's B-L-O-O-R. People didn't like a statue of a woman being crucified. It was blasphemous to some. Okay. The artist, Alma Luckenhouse Lackey, just wanted to create a symbol of the suffering of women. In any case, 10 years later, the statue was moved to the garden behind Emmanuel College at the University of Toronto. The noontime vigil was held there in the garden. Donna Marchand attended as a representative of the Women's Studies Student Union. She spoke to the attendees, quote, we can't let men push us around anymore. We've been pushed too far and it's time to push back, end quote. Thea Jensen, an author from British Columbia, told the crowd, let us pledge today that the blood of the woman of Montreal will not be wasted. And then she drank some red cranberry juice and passed it out to the crowd. One attendee, Kristen Honey of Thunder Bay, said it hits harder because it's so close to what we are, students. It could have been anybody we know. It could have been us. One male student who was in one of the classrooms at the time of the shooting, his name was Sardo Blaze. He went into a deep depression and hung himself nine months after the shooting. Then his parents committed suicide together in June of 1991. He was their only child. So that Mm. was kind of sad. Mark's suicide note was not printed in full for years. Here's an English translation of it. This is the one that was found on him. Apparently he left other notes that I don't know if they ever Mm. came up. Okay, so now I'm Mark. Forgive the mistakes. I had 15 minutes to write this. See also Annex. Please note that if I commit suicide today, 89-12-6, it is not for economic reasons, for I have waited until I exhausted all my financial means, even refusing jobs, but for political reasons, because I have decided to send the feminists who have always ruined my life to their maker. For seven years, life has brought me no joy, and being totally blasé, I've decided to put an end to those varagos. I tried in my youth to enter the forces as an officer cadet, which would have allowed me possibly to get into the arsenal and proceed lordy in a raid. They refused me because I'm asocial, which is not true. Mm -hmm. I therefore had to wait until this day to execute my plans. In between, I continued my studies in a haphazard way, for they never really interested me, knowing in advance my fate which did not prevent me from obtaining very good marks, despite my theory of not handing in work and the lack of studying before exams. Mm -hmm. Sounds kind of like my theory. I shouldn't laugh. I was going to say mine too, aside from the good marks part. (laughs) Even if the mad killer epithet will be attributed to me by the media, 
I consider myself a rational erudite that only the arrival of the grim reaper is forced to take extreme act. Why persevere to exist if it is only to please the government? Being rather backward looking by nature, except for science, the feminists have always enraged me. They want to keep the advantages of women e.g. cheaper insurance, extended maternity leave, preceded by a preventative leave, etc., while seizing for themselves those of men. Thus, it is an obvious truth that if the Olympic Games removed the men-woman distinction, there would be women-only in graceful events. So the feminists are not fighting to remove that barrier. They are so opportunistic that they do not neglect to profit from the knowledge accumulated by men through the ages. They always try to misrepresent them every time they can. Thus, the other day, I heard they were honoring the Canadian men and women who fought at the front line during the world wars. How can you explain that since women were not authorized to go to the front line? And then he has a bunch of question marks. Will we hear of Caesar's female legions and female galley slaves, who of course took up 50% of the ranks of history, though they never existed? A real Cassus belly. Sorry for this too brief letter, Mark Lapine. The letter is followed by a list of 19 names with a note at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Nearly died today. The lack of time because I started too late has allowed these radical feminists to survive. Aliyah Iacta Est. I can't remember what that means in Latin. I looked for the list of names that was eventually published, but I couldn't find a full list. I'm sure being American, most of the names wouldn't be familiar, but I did learn that six of the names were the six police women on the Montreal Urban Community Police that Mark looked up and Mm. thought could take a men's job. And then there was that sportscaster. And then there's two others I'm going to talk about in a minute. In 2014, on the 25th anniversary of the shooting, the Toronto Star had a story about two of the women on the list, Monique Samard and Francine Pelletier. Monique was a well-known union leader in 1989 and later became president of SODEC, Quebec's Film and Culture Foundation. Monique said two days after the killings, when the newspaper La Presse printed the list of names quote my reaction was oh my god these young women are the victims because he couldn't get to us it was horrifying to be on that list end quote francine pelletier was a journalist in quebec and she's the one that did that fifth estate show 10 years later and had founded la vie and rose a feminist publication she worked for la presse a montreal newspaper at the time her editor called her the day they printed that list and said have you seen today's paper brace yourself Francine said, it broke my heart. It didn't change who I was, but many of his victims probably weren't even feminists, and I felt they died in my name. For me, Polytechnique sounded the death knell of the glory days of feminism. Those days were gone when he started shooting. Feminism wouldn't be easy anymore, which... Like, was okay, it ever? I know. He was our first terrorist and nobody was treating it that way. And she means the first terrorist against feminism, I think. Mm -hmm. Those engineering students dared take the place of men. They represented our future. And he was targeting our future, how we imagined ourselves to be. Monique says she was never really afraid, nor was Francine. But Monique had bodyguards and was getting death threats at the Confederation of National Trade Unions, where she was high up in the ranks. One guy called and said he would, quote, finish the job. Monique said some people thought he, Mark, was a hero. And this is Rebecca. Look him up. He still is. If you Google him, some people still do think he's a hero. As Mark said in his note, he might be called, quote, the mad killer. That's true. That's what they gave him, even though he was not considered a terrorist. 
who committed a political crime, even though he spelled out why he was doing it in his damn letter. Mm-hmm. But he, they did exactly what he said. They just call him a mad killer like they always do. Right. Headlines didn't talk about violence against women. And if anyone brought it up, they were quickly shut down. If you read editorials and letters to the editor from that time, you can see it happening. At the time, Francine wanted to see the whole letter but was thwarted until someone sent her a copy and an unmarked envelope. Probably someone on the police force. The police chief later said he knew who sent it, which makes me wonder if he sent it. I don't know. Francine gave the letter to La Presse and they published it in 1990. While Mark's shitty father and the abuse of Mark were discussed as a reason for his crime, political motives were never discussed. Only actor Pierre Borgault said this was the first sexist crime in history, end quote, which... There have been sexist crimes since there have been women. But at least he was acknowledging the reason for the crime. Francine said they were basically saying, quote, cool it, girls. No one wanted to hear this stuff. And for me, that was such an aha moment, end quote. Monique said, and this is Monique Samard, not Monique Lapine. I remember sitting in Notre Dame Basilica, she was at the funeral for six of the victims, and feeling an overwhelming sense of rage inside me. There was a sense, well, maybe it's normal. Maybe it just happened because women have gone too far. Women in Quebec have pushed too far. Anti-feminism really took over, end quote. Both women felt that in 2014, things had turned a corner. And I'm like, no, they Mm. haven't, honey. On the Fifth Estate show, Francine interviewed Elliot Layton, the author of the book Hunting Humans. He's an anthropologist and a crime expert. He said mass shooting should not be considered random events. About the fact that Mark Lapine targeted women, Elliot said, well, they single out from the dominant tensions and frustrations in society and incorporate them into their own thinking. So sometimes it's racist. Sometimes, as with Lapine, it's sexist. But whatever the tensions prevalent in the society are, at the time are reflected in the thinking of these kinds of killers. So this occurred at a time when women were finally breaking loose of the shackles that had tied them for 10,000 years. It's not surprising that out of that tension in the general society will come some lone killer who blamed them for everything. There's a long series of events which begins with the depressed, vulnerable, confused person who feels he's failing in the social order and begins to incubate this campaign vengeance and the fantasy of it and then there's one triggering incident that finally decides he's going to do it end quote mark turner his old roommate said i think it was either me or our roommates asked him what he thought about suicide and he said i don't want to take part in this discussion only if i ever did commit suicide i would take as many people as i could with me on december 6 mark lapine wrote a letter to mark turner his former roommate and reminded him that the phone was still in mark turner's name mark turner said it just goes to show you that he really had planned everything and he had made sure all the points were covered in 1996 nadia garby mark lapine's younger sister died of cardiac arrest in her apartment after years of heroin addiction the police who found her said policeman who found her said she looked like a young person who was destroyed by drugs it was clear she had been taking drugs a long time mark turner said of nadia his sister was quite different than him in the sense that he was i guess perceived as somebody who was very intellectual and socially outcast where his sister was more with the in crowd so obviously there was a big difference between the two i'll say there might be a big difference between the two but they were both affected by their Mm. childhood in different ways she internalized it and he externalized it Mm -hmm. unfortunately There's much more information to find out about Mark than the victims, and which shouldn't be surprising. 
Mark was an aberration. And because he committed a horrible act, we want to know why. And that's why there's a lot written about him. But mm-hmm. I did want to end by talking about the victims. You know, one thing that struck me is they're all about our age. In 1989, I was 24. They were all 21, 22, 24, 28. They were up between the ages, I think, of 21 and 31. They were all young. It just, mm. I don't know what, why that just, but anyway, Jean-Via Bergeron, age 21, was a second year civil engineering student. She'd gotten a scholarship to the Ecole Polytechnique and she played the clarinet and she sang with the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. She was the daughter of city councilor Therese Daval. Jean-Via babysit for Montreal Marachine Doors kids. And he cried at the news conference the day after the massacre. There's a big picture of him in the paper crying. Therese DeVoe told the Gazette, she was a very active girl, a girl who liked to get involved in things. She loved to sing. She was strong in music, but she also got high enough marks in her other subjects to win a scholarship. It's a rare combination of interests. Helene Colgan, age 23, was graduating with a mechanical engineering degree. She had three job offers already, but was contemplating going to graduate school. Her immediate plan was a trip to Mexico with her friend, Natalie Croteau. Helene's father, Clarence, said, I knew she was in there when he heard about the massacre on the news. He said she had so many projects. She was a conscientious and patient girl and always pushed things through to the end. Natalie Croteau, age 23, was also graduating with a mechanical engineering degree. She couldn't wait for a trip to Mexico with Helene. Her father was distraught when he heard of his daughter's death. He punched the cement wall in his home and was still nursing his sore hand the next day when he said in the Gazette, it's horrendous. 23 years aimed at graduating with a degree. She's only three months away from getting it and she'd be killed, all because she was sitting in a classroom. Maurice Lagonaire, age 25, worked as a budget clerk in the finance department. She had only been married three or four months when she was murdered. She was the youngest child in a family of 14 kids. Jeff Lagonair, her husband, said, I don't spend time hating him or trying to kill him in my dream or to make him pay for what he did. I didn't spend time doing that. What I believe, he was born well and alive and normal. And I believe that the external influences, maybe friends, his father, things happened in his life to make him very aggressive toward people especially towards women. Maurice Leclerc, age 23, the daughter of Lieutenant Pierre Leclerc of the Montreal Police, was studying materials engineering. She was a punk music fan. Guy Arbor, director of the school's annual fundraising campaign, said of Maurice Leclerc, she was brilliant. She worked very hard for her college. She worked at job promotion. She worked on the annual campaign. She was brilliant, brilliant. She was always so happy, end quote. A neighbor and family friend, Jean Blondin, said, very intelligent and a woman of character. She had all the talent in the world and a promising future. And also remember Dominique Leclerc, who worked with Mark at the hospital? Mm-hmm. One of the people who's nice to him, I'm not going to say few because it sounds like a lot of people were nice to him. She was Maurice Leclerc's first cousin. And she didn't realize when she saw the killer, then she realized she knew him. Anne-Marie LeMay, age 22, was studying mechanical engineering. She wanted to go on to innovate in the prosthetic limbs field. And she was also a talented singer. Barbara Dagnall, age 22, was also graduating that year with a degree in mechanical engineering, like her father. He was helping her with her final project, and they were going to meet that week to work on it together. Her father, Pierre, taught at University du Quebec's L'École de Technologie Supérieure. Sorry about that. Sonia Pelletier, age 28, was graduating with a degree in mechanical engineering. She had a job lined up that was to start the following Monday. She had dreams of starting her own engineering firm. 
Anne-Marie Edouard, age 21, was studying chemical engineering. She played the guitar, piano, and she sang. She was on the Ecole Polytechnique ski team and was buried in her ski jacket. Michelle Richard, age 21, was studying, I can never say it right, metallurgy. She was her mother's best friend and was known as Mimi to her family. She had just reconciled with her estranged father and was planning her wedding. Michelle Richard's father killed himself a year later, December 14, 1990. Maude Havernick, age 29, already had a degree in environmental design from the University de Quebec at Montreal and was studying metallurgical engineering. She was giving her final presentation when she was shot or she was there to give it. She had three terms to go to get her degree. Her living partner, Serge Gagnon, was a professor from UQAM. The two met when Maude attended there. Maude was also an artist, a sculptor. Sergei told the Gazette, it's so absurd. How are we to interpret this event? It was a useless and unjust act. Maude's sister, Sylvie, I think, her two sisters were on that show and I could not get their names right. There were no, like, you know how they have people Right, they didn't hit. And it was like, they were speaking French and I couldn't get their names. Right. Her younger sister said, yeah, I hate him. What right did he have to do something like that to destroy how many families? Yes, I hate him. And I will never, 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 never going to be able to forgive. Never. And her older sister smiled and nodded. Annie St. Arnal, age 23, was studying mechanical engineering. She was in her last class before graduating. She was, like a lot of her fellow victims, involved in student associations and sport. She was trying to decide if she would join her brother in Africa, where he was a missionary, or take a job she had been offered an aluminum smelter. One of her neighbors said, quote, she had no faults. She was very kind and she loved life, end quote. In 2015, the library in her hometown, Latuk, was named after her. Barbara Klusnik Wadajewicz, age 31, was studying nursing. She'd had a career in economics and went back to school to study to become a nurse. She had moved to Quebec from Poland and spoke five languages. And she's the one that was in the cafeteria with her husband. Annie Turka, age 20, was studying metallurgical engineering. She wanted to use her knowledge to help the environment. She was a swimmer and would give free swimming lessons to disabled children in the summer. The Ecole Polytechnique set up a scholarship for female engineering students called the Order of the White Rose. Natalie Provost spoke to the crowd at a ceremony 30 years after the shooting for the women who got the scholarship. She said, for me, and probably for many people here, you symbolize the interrupted dreams of my classmates. Natalie, if you recall, was shot three times, once in the head and twice in the legs. Mm. After the shooting, the local news interviewed her from her stretcher in the hospital. She said, I was terrified seeing somebody killing my friends. Then she said, I want every girl in Quebec, everywhere in the world who wants to be an engineer to keep this idea into their mind because engineering is a great profession, end quote. In 1995, in response to the massacre, Canada passed the Firearms Act. The law required licensing and registration of semi-automatic guns like the one Mark Lapine used. But then... In 2012, the Firearms Act was pretty much reversed by Parliament. Mm. On April 18th, 2020, 22 people died when Gabrielle Wartman went on a rampage through Nova Scotia. I don't remember that. And he had this like fake cop car and a fake like cop. I remember it. So in over 30 years, really not much has changed, I don't think. But I was going to say there was one article I read that was within the last few years that one of the reporters and it wasn't the one that I quoted but it was a young female reporter I 
don't think she worked for the Gazette. I think she worked for one of the other newspapers. She was 24 at the time. And she and another female reporter were sent there to cover it because they both spoke French and none of the male reporters did. And she said she feels bad now about how she covered the victims. She didn't focus on their accomplishments. It was more these young girls, you know, and she said a lot of that had to do with her editors, Mm. how they wanted her to write it. At the time, she didn't really see anything wrong with it, but now she does. And I also want to say that anytime anything like this happens, but this was obvious, it's obviously because of the way women are seen in society. To say that it's just because he's in some nutter is not... It just adds to the problem. Yeah, it is adding to the problem. You can say that he did this because he was abused. He, like that one guy said, he internalized, I hate the word zeitgeist, but he internalized the feeling against women. To what you're saying is that a lot of it talks about it as though his reaction to how women, quote unquote, treated treated him rather than how he viewed women exactly so in in a way women's fault just like that incel guy in san bernardino yeah you know women can be so mean to guys whatever kind of thing instead of looking at how men behave towards women and obviously i mean this is an obvious thing to say but people point out like the big things like his overtly sexist statements Mm -hmm. and behavior but nobody looks at all the little things in society that support sexist behavior, Mm -hmm. objectification of women, just the stuff we were talking about with the Bechdel Mm -hmm. test for movies. And and, and the thing is, there were a lot of people that were nice to him. It wasn't like he was the social outcast that had nobody. There were people that were friendly to him and friends with him. Whatever issues he may have had and whatever abuse he suffered, in his childhood, his attitudes towards women would have been largely supported by everything he saw around him, how women mm-hmm. were treated, how women are talked about. I'm sure very few people ever said to him, you know, Mark, your attitude towards women is a big issue. You're really sexist. And the way you talk and treat about women is wrong. I still hear people say shit like he says all the time. I know. And that's what I'm saying is that like people think we overreact to gender things. People don't understand that these guys who do this feel that they have the support of society Mm -hmm. because everything they see around them supports misogyny exactly and it's not as blatant as it used to be but it still is there daily almost every mass shooter and they're all men have a history of domestic violence yes because no matter what gender they're killing a lot of it comes from male entitlement and also just the and i know this is another obvious thing with the gun porn and violence mm-hmm. yes. porn and male toxicity porn all the stuff that shows men it's okay to be aggressive violent and i wanted to say that the list you know the women who are like oh my god i was on the list and these poor girls died cuz he couldn't get to me he didn't have the balls to go shoot these women all that list was was another act of terrorism exactly he was never going to shoot these famous women he shot the easy targets the girls of the engineering department Mm -hmm. and i think on at least some level he knew that because he was shooting young women in a male-dominated place there would be some 
not support for him killing people, obviously, but it, he didn't go to a garden party no. or a tea room. The list itself was just a way that aside from killing whoever he killed there, no, but he could target these women yes, for other exactly. people, That's not what necessarily saying. to kill them, but to make their lives miserable exactly. and to terrorize them in another way. Just the response, the downplaying of the misogyny aspect. And if you read, if you read any of the papers at that time, editorials and stuff, that's what it's not about the gender he killed people he killed 14 people it doesn't matter if they're women or not that shouldn't hmm. be the focus it's like but right. it was- if, if a woman had gone into a place that where she knew she was just going to get men like say a football locker room yeah. and shot men it would be all about how she hated men. she was a man hater he even said it his suicide letter oh i'm gonna be called them but i just want you to know this is why i'm doing it people were right. still like oh well And I don't think people gave a shit anyway, but part of it is what people don't get is the reaction to this is part of what the problem is. I know that because people downplay misogyny and violence towards women and just dismissing of women, like the, the Bechtel test, that's one of the things that makes doing this okay. Not that everybody said, oh, it's okay that he shot women, but in his mind, it's okay. And then a lot of people, whether they realize it or not, afterwards are saying, gee, it wasn't okay, but he's this outlier. He's just some crazy guy. And every single fucking time it happens, it's a guy with a fucking gun. And most of them have issues with women. Most of the adult ones, at least those issues are blamed on women. I know. Even by by rational people, every single time this happens, it's like it's in a vacuum. The other factor is easy availability of these type of guns. Nobody really gives a shit. Another woman that was interviewed on one of the news, I watched a whole bunch of news stories about it. She was another survivor. She'd been working for gun control for all these years. And she said she didn't realize she'd be having to do it for 30 years. She said in 1995, when that firearms act was passed, they were so excited. They had a party Mm -hmm. and everything. And then it just, there's no reason in hell that anyone should be able to go buy something like that. And 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 I don't give a shit what your excuses are to me. I don't fucking care. You can go hunting with a rifle fucking semi. If you need a semi-automatic to kill a deer, then you need to take some. Well, it's against the law to kill a deer with a semi-automatic. The only thing a semi-automatic is good for is shooting a lot of people at once. That's why the military developed them. And people say, oh, we buy them for target shooting. What kind of target shooting is that? Though? Right. Until people start seeing the connection, which they won't, because any discussion of misogyny among anything but an audience that's almost 100% women yeah. gets dismissed. But thank you, because when I saw that, I said, boy, I want to know more about that. And when I saw it on Twitter, I was like, I don't remember. And I'm, I feel I had a bad. vague memory, but there have been so I many know. shootings. I know. You know. Oh, so you have a recommendation. I do. Yay. <laughs> My NNW is on the, I'm sorry, I don't have Britain's tv channel structure so i'm not sure what uh, what channel it's on i've watched it on acorn Mm. which is a u.s and canadian which i have too now streaming service right that that has british shows i'm so happy to do an nnw on this it's on the show that premiered at least here in the u.s in november daglish and it's 
a series based on the mystery novels of P.D. James. I was a big fan of hers. I read her books. Her first one came out in 1962, but I got turned on to her books in the late 70s, read them all, reread them all, but I hadn't read them for years. And after I watched this, I went on iBooks and got for my tablet, you can get like all 14 of her Daglish books in one oh my god and so it's like reading one seven thousand oh my god so it's so it's great is it expensive it was 30 something bucks oh that's not bad i watched this once it's only six episodes based on three books i've read the books i just finished the last one it was based on like a week or two ago and then i watched this again before i did this on nw but let me get right into it and i'll say most of what i want to say bad reenactments nothing that i know sometimes with fiction we we find something to call a reenactment but there was nothing about this that i wanted to call one narrative cliches there are no points i'm taking away obviously it's a british mystery based on british mystery books so there are some cliches it seems to me like every british mystery of this ilk has a sergeant, a detective sergeant, who's kind of crude and talks about sex and vulgar terms. And the more distinguished, uh, it's always a guy inspector chides the sergeant for the way they express themselves, whether it's Elizabeth George's books, P.D. James, Midsummer Murders. So that's definitely an English cliche, mystery cliche, but I'm not taking away points for it. Um, because it's not a huge part of P.D. James's books. There are surprisingly few cliches in Ooh. this show. And I know w- when you do a show based on books, you're kind of walking that line between the book and the show. But these shows, and I'll talk about it more as we get into things, were so faithful to the books. Oh. And where it veered was done so well and in the spirit of the books that it's almost like talking about the same thing. Racial gender obtuseness, I'm not taking away points. And in fact, if we were in the habit of giving points, I would actually give points. Obviously, her books, the first one was, I think, written in 62 or 63. They were written in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and maybe a couple in the 90s. There were different attitudes towards race and gender, although she was very non-racist and stuff. These shows take the attitude that she expresses in her books and actually kind of puts it into practice. They take one character, Kate Miskin, who in the books is white and make her black. She's a detective sergeant. They add in the first one, Shroud for a Nightingale, they add a doctor who's not in the book, who's either Pakistani or Indian. They also add kind of more gender things, but they don't hit you over the head with it. It's very subtle. It's not like I really like Endeavor, which takes place in the same era. These take place in the early to mid 70s. Um, But Endeavor, like when they get this uh, female constable, all the guys that we like who are the regulars are way, way more woke gender wise, sexism wise than they would have been back then. And the Daglish one, it's much more subtle. Miskin, who they add to the second series, The Black Tower, she wasn't in that one. But they add her in. There are not so much in that one, but in the third set of shows, there's reaction to her for her color and her gender. In her books, P.D. James does not have these characters of color, but the way the books are written, making Miskin black 
works. Instead of being racially and gender obtuse, the, the show is actually racially and gender aware. And they do it in a way where it doesn't feel like it doesn't belong in something that's taking place mm-hmm. in the 70s. Okay. And, and they're not, it's not preachy or anything. It feels very organic. Lack of good visuals. No, I wouldn't take away any points. As with many of these British series, it's beautifully filmed in beautiful locations. I think the Black Tower is filmed on the coast, like in Devon, possibly. It must be very hard, especially when you're filming in the city outdoors, to have it look like the 70s. Yeah. But they do a great job, so no points away for that. Missing pieces? No. They do have to compress three books into two episodes each. So each book into two episodes. So there's a lot that's left out. But the interesting thing is that they rework the plot. So the tone of what's left out is there. It's like the people who wrote the TV shows paid so much attention to not only what happened in the books, but P.D. James's thinking behind things and how they happened. I mean, really in-depth that the things that they change and leave out, they make the show work so that those things are that feeling and spirit of what happened is still there. It's hard to explain, but it's it's quite a trick, even though big parts of the storyline, especially on the third one, but you don't feel like anything's missing if you know these books and have read them. And also it's interesting that they take some stuff from one book and kind of put it in another one. Inaccuracies, anachronisms, no. Like I said, I'm sure it's very difficult to film something that takes place in the 70s and make it, especially outdoors, look like the 70s. Um, And they do. The dialogue is almost completely lifted from the book, so you don't get a lot of those phrases that people weren't saying nice and in a couple cases you do it's in places that they've added to the show that aren't in the book scenes like there's one scene where a young woman who's been raped says to miskin miskin's trying to convince her to go public or press charges with it and the she says i don't want to be that girl and nobody was saying that yeah in the 70s that's a more recent phrase but there isn't enough of that that i would take points off it's not like like i stopped watching whatever that show the u.s show is based on the fbi profile yeah yeah we talked about that yeah yeah it was mind hunter Hunter, and i just can't watch shows where it's supposed to be in the 60s and 70s and people like that movie i really like that movie the dig it takes place in the 30s and at one point two guys high five each other Mm. nobody was high fiving anybody and that's not why do you need to even have that in why can't they behave like just shake hands or something but anyway storytelling will not take away points It's awesome. As I said, that they are very true to the P.D. James books, even though they had to leave stuff out. They paid a lot of attention to her overall themes and what she wanted and the way people acted to the part where they had to have read these books incredibly closely to have done it this way. In places they make changes, it's done seamlessly. And one big change that really works is that in the original books, like I said, the first one was took place in like 1962 or 63 and Daglish's wife and baby had died 13 years before. 
in the TV show, they make it so that the wife and baby had just died. And it actually works really well because he's not an emotive man and he's very controlled both in the show and in the book. But to have that have happened and to have people mention it and stuff, it gives you, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in writing that you can't show on TV unless you're going to have a lot of exposition that's going to be awkward and not work. So having that gives you that element that's there in the books that she can write and write and write about, but you can't really show in the show. And the actor who plays him, Bertie Havel, who I'm sure people in the UK and stuff are familiar with, I had never seen that I know of in anything before. He's perfect for Tag Leash. Absolutely perfect in the way he acts, the way he looks. But back to the storytelling, even the second time through when I watched it, and I had only watched it maybe a month before, I was paying attention all the time. The the acting is good. The way the stories are written is good. You don't get all bogged down in exposition. There's no big whiteboard with yeah. everybody's picture tacked up and strings going all over and freshness. Yes. Yes. Even though it's based on these novels that have been around as long as I have, the way the story's told it's fresh, I would say it's head and shoulders above any other of this type of mystery show you would watch. Oh on tv right now they add the freshness with the race and gender stuff that again fits in it seamlessly in a way that a lot of shows i don't think can do i i haven't really seen it done that well in a period drama you know either people act like they do now it's just awkward and um repetition none beating the drum no, they could like like they could overdo it on his grief at losing his wife and kid, which would be way off because he's such a composed yeah. kind of controlled guy. They could do it with gender. They could do it with race. They could do it with all sorts of things. And they don't. They just let it happen. So that is, yes, a 10. Oh, my God. I can't remember the last time I gave something a 10. <laughs> and I want to say just a tip of the hat to the acting. All the acting is really good. And, you know, there's things like I won't watch the Lindley series because both the Lindley and Barbara Havers in the TV series look nothing yeah, and I act never... nothing like the ones in the books. Yeah, I didn't and like it. I've never watched anything where they've picked an actor that so well personifies the person oh. in the book. And also the other things, you know, how we joke about there only being like 12 actors. And I know, yeah. And in the first one, Shroud for Nightingale, the matron and the head teaching nurse of this nursing school the two women who play it are two women who play the two sisters in the first case files. Oh, yeah. Jackson yeah, Brody case yeah. files episode, which I thought was funny. The young woman who plays Miskin, her name is, I think, Carlos Pierre. And she's really good. Um, she captures the personality of the Miskin in the books. The, another thing they do is in most of the Daglish books, his second in command is a guy named Massingham but in one book Shroud for Nightingale it's this guy Masterson who's kind of this 
asshole and he hates stagflation and stuff. And they actually kept him through the three stories on this. And it works really well because he's a foil to Kate Miskin and uh, to Daglish, and so just such a good show. I haven't read any of the reviews I saw on IMDb because I went on to look. There are four directors, two women and two men. There are two writers besides P.D. James, a man and a woman. It's like this gender equality, which is more, normally you'd see almost totally men, Mm. but I will say it seems like it's a female project. The attention to detail, the attention to the spirit of the original writer, not that men can't do that. And I know that there have been some critical stuff people haven't liked it. I looked on IMDb and it gets like a 7.5 out of 10 Hmm. as far as, and I don't read any of the reviews. I don't look at the ratings because as far as I'm concerned, my opinion counts for what I like and exactly whatever issues I can imagine, what issues people might have. I don't have them. I would say that Mm. I probably know those books as well as anyone else. If you've read the books, I think you'll like the series unless you're such a stickler for authenticity that you hate somebody being black who's white in the book or whatever. If you haven't read the books, I think you would like this series on its own merits. I'll have to watch it. I haven't read any of her books for a long time. It had been a long time. It had been a long time until I got the 7,000 page thing on my iPad, which I'm putting aside now to read Elizabeth George's latest, and then I'll go back to... But Mm. it's funny, the little detail things I remember, like in Death of an Expert Witness, which I think was one of the ones that TV show in the 80s did that. There was one scene where a guy was in a hobby horse costume and he chomped the horse's jaws at an angel in a graveyard. Just this minor thing that had nothing to do with the plot at all. (laughs) And for some reason, I totally remembered that. And it's probably been 30 years since Because I read them back then more than now, I would reread books. Yeah quite often. I do remember her final one, and she was in her 90s at the time, feeling at the time like it wasn't up to snuff with the others. But... Yeah, I, but it still was better than a lot of Right, right. Stuff. Better. So the series Daglish, I, it's only six episodes. I cannot wait until they make more. I know, they're I hope so to God short. They do. And it's not like these are each like an hour and a half episodes or anything. They're an hour each. I'm sure it's very expensive to make. I don't often give things a 10. This, I could watch it again tonight for a third time and be up all night watching. Okay. Thank you. That sounds good. I can't wait to watch that one. But anyway, so if you like us, you can always donate on Patreon. Yeah, give us a review. Yeah, you can give us a review. And again, our website is crimeandstuffonline.com where you can find out anything you need to know. Anything else? No, I don't think so. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Good night. So did Billy bring over spaghettis and meatballs because of mom's birthday? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. Like it was a birthday party I wasn't invited to? I don't know. All I know is he called and said he had sauce and meatballs. He wanted to bring it over and she said, okay. Oh, so you guys made the rigatoni? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, Deirdre brought rigatoni over. Dry or cooked? dry oh okay it's like pizza there's not really a bad one you know Mm -hmm. and i said i've had plenty of fucking bad pizza in my life buddy boy and sex yeah i didn't have to say that see i was leaving (laughs) it for the
we're just some bitter feminists, whatever. Whatever. Feminists. I think, but since it's after, we've been going for three hours, I'm yes. sure there are no men listening to our. They don't listen. 